Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. That is the sound of an ocarina, as demonstrated by today's guest, Brian Blauk in a video on his YouTube channel. And yes, I called it an ocarina. I wanted to point that out because I incorrectly called it an ocarina when I first said it in the upcoming interview, but I corrected it after that. We'll talk about ocarinas and more in just a few minutes. So hello everyone. I am David Lane and this is episode seven, our second episode of the week. Two episodes per week uh, will be the norm through August, and after that we might go back to Fridays only for uh, the interviews and maybe an occasional bonus episode here and there, but it's all flexible, just like a pit has to be when they're in a vamp. In addition to Apple, Stitcher, and Podbean, the podcasts are on YouTube now, at least everything from episode 5 onward is. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't make a big enough dent in YouTube's traffic yet to be easy to find, so if YouTube is your thing, the best way to find it is to go to my website, davidlanemusic.com slash podcast, and click on the YouTube button near the bottom of the page. That will take you to my channel. You can then click on subscribe, and you'll see each episode as as it arrives there. By the way, please don't forget, Subscribe, share, rate, and review. Some of you have done all of that, and that's great. Subscribing includes following Life at the Pit Pod on Instagram or Twitter and the podcast feed wherever you're subscribing. That tells Google and Apple and all the other search engines that people are listening. Rating and reviewing also does the same thing. Sharing is just letting people know how much you liked an episode, and that hopefully gets us more listeners. By the way, if you have any questions, you you can send me a message through Instagram, Twitter, my website, or my Facebook page at David M. Lane Music. You can also comment publicly at the Podbean page or leave a comment in the form of a, of a review on Apple. Let me know what kind of information I'm not getting to you so far and what you'd like to know about the world of theater music. I will read whatever you send and give it strong consideration. Okay, on with the show. Today's guest is Brian Blauk. He's our second Reeds player on the show. And don't worry, we'll define what a Reeds player is in just a couple of minutes or so. With my previous Reeds player, Beth Cox, back on episode four, we didn't spend much time on that aspect. But we're going to get a little bit deeper here with Brian. Brian is also the first person um, with a significant amount of touring experience that I've interviewed. In fact, he played on what are called bus tours, and he has some truly fascinating stories. And yes, we'll also talk about his love of non-orchestral woodwinds, such as the ocarina. Here is my interview with Brian Blauk. Brian, you, uh, if I was to go to a show and you were in the pit, I would see uh, that you play a read book. and you know, It would say read Reads. That's what it'd be. R e e d s. But if I was to go to an orchestra concert or a wind ensemble or 
I don't know, chamber, <laughs> chamber music concert, I wouldn't see that. I would, I would see something else. So, uh, theater, just like, you know, theater is known for having its own terminology and I don't think the pit is any different <laughs> and they call what you play reads. So describe that. What, what is reads? What, what are we talking about? Well, reads is, uh, basically just a, a slang for any instrument in the woodwind family, which generally have reeds, except for flutes, obviously don't have reeds. Right. And generally in theater books, in the reed books, it's usually a mixture of various instruments. You need to play clarinet, saxophone, flute, all those. So they just kind of books that have multiple things and are, are called reed books. Oh, right. Yeah. If, if, you're, if you're playing a show that has straight books, like there's a, a, a flute book that's only flute and piccolo, it, it's not going to say a reed book. It's going to be specifically a flute book. Right, right. Um, okay. So reed, reed book just kind of refers to books that are a mixture of various instruments. Yeah, it's just a funny slang instead of woodwinds. It's no, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the no reed, single reed, double reeds all together. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, great. Um, well, kind of jumped ahead. So, how uh, how is life without theater during this time? Well, obviously, it's it's tough not having gigs. Um, you know, kind of depressing. But right. um, uh, I'm still keeping busy. I'm still I'm still working. Um, I work at a local music store, and we've been open the whole time. Actually, we were deemed essential because we work closely with the um, local school districts, which still had bands, so the kids and teachers still needed supplies. We were up in curbside pickup for most of that, but so anybody out there listening, support your local music stores. Yes. We, we need it. <laughs> yes, yes, local music store, local musicians. <laughs> it's it's definitely a, a, a shop local uh, time, you know, for anything, yeah. but especially for the arts as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So talk about how did you get started in music? And, and so you play a lot of instruments. What what was the first uh, orchestral woodwind that you play? Uh, I started on clarinet, which is my primary instrument. Um, my school district, I grew up in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. and my school district started band in fourth grade, and I just decided I wanted to join the band. Uh, my first choice was actually euphonium. I went I wanted to play euphonium. Nice. <laughs> My my parents said it was too expensive, so they chose the clarinet for me, which worked out well. Um, so that's how I got got started in in music. Yeah, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I when I started band, I I wanted to play trumpet just because two reasons: we had a trumpet, and my older brother played it. But uh, it was the same band director my older brother had. And the band teacher asked my mom, does he have a pretty good ear? And I, I, and, and she said, yes, you know, before I could say anything. And, <laughs> and, and she said, uh, trumpet's not for you. Let's go to French horn. <laughs> and, uh, fortunately the school there on the larger instruments, like if you'd gone to that school for euphonium, you could have played it because they loaned them out. <laughs> mm -hmm. But, you know, at some point, you know, if you wanted better than a school quality, you would have had to buy it. Okay. Uh, you yeah. know, clarinet, uh, you know, it's just, you know, I assume that a lot of our listeners are musicians, but there's probably several uh, listeners who are not musicians. And uh, I say clarinet, that sounds like one instrument, but you really, as you mentioned with the reeds being a family, it's like each instrument is its own family. So clarinet, 
Uh, you've got at least off the top of my head four kinds of clarinets, just in terms of range. But then you get into various keys. But we're typically talking about B flat clarinet. Yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. they don't call it alto. I just call it the B flat clarinet, right? Yeah, it's B flat. Yeah. Right. Sometimes, sometimes they call it a soprano. Yeah. Yeah, because but there's also like a E flat clarinet, which is higher than that. So yeah, there's E flat. There's a C soprano. There's an A um, alto clarinet, basset horn, bass clarinet, contra alto, contra bass. We got about seven, eight different sizes. Right. Uh, what of all those clarinets? What are the ones? I, I mean, are you do you ever use any in the show other than the standard B flat clarinet? Yes. Um, a lot of shows will have uh, parts for E-flat clarinet, which is a um, very small clarinet. Um, some shows have parts for A clarinet. <clears throat> That's kind of rare, but Into the Woods has an A clarinet and um, Parade. Right. Um, bass clarinet's common. Right. As well. Um, and not as common, or some shows have contra alto parts. Right. Not as common, and not as many people have them. But. Yeah, uh, yeah. Parade, the bass clarinet part in Parade, uh, that's actually, that's a great part. <laughs> it's that's a great really show, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay, you started off in clarinet. At, at, uh, at what point did you decide to start picking up the other woodwinds? And actually... Uh, let's just well, let's just kind of go through. So what what are the instruments? It's like let's say that you get a you've been asked to play reeds for a show and you get a book and it it lists all these instruments. So clarinet's probably the instrument that you breathe a sigh of relief. Good, there's clarinet in it. Yeah. What are what are some other instruments that maybe give you a little bit of anxiety if you see <laughs> uh, maybe difficult music written for it? Uh, that would definitely be the oboe and the bassoon parts. English horn, any of the double reeds. Right. Um, I'm not as proficient as on them as I as I would like to be. And and that's that's typically you know what's what's going to happen when you have everything in one book, um, you know, because everyone has their preferred their their instrument that they spent more time on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so it sounds like uh, your your no reeds, your flutes and piccolos are ones that you've taken to. When did you get into those? Um. <clears throat> I think it was about as sophomore in high school. My private clarinet teacher was was actually a doubler, um, multiple woodwind player. Right. Uh, he, his primary was saxophone, actually. And we were in a lesson one day, and he said, you know, you should really learn to play saxophone. Right. So um, he knew my parents. We, we went to – my parents went like to go to flea markets and antique festivals all the time. So he said, next time you're at a flea market, look for a, a cheap sax. So that weekend we went to a flea market. We found a sax for $25, so I bought it. An alto Um, sax? Yeah, an alto. Right. And then, like, maybe two months after that, he said, you know, you should play flute. Nice. Yeah, so so a couple months after this, picking up the saxophone, he said, you should play flute. So we went and found a flute. Uh, So, like, once a month, he'd give me lessons on sax or flute, and we'd spend a a little bit of time on that. So I, I did talk to somebody else about, uh, you know, one of the challenges of switching reads and she mentioned you got to, like in a show, you got to 
first of all, remember what instrument you're playing <laughs> and yeah. your embouchure might, uh, which is your mouth position, may adjust according to that. She, she said, like, uh, th there's a certain position on clarinet that if you, like, if, if you don't change the jaw, you don't get the lower notes <laughs> on, on the alto saxophone or something like that. So mm -hmm. have you found that to be a challenge with um, just changing mouth position or something you had to get used to? I never really found that to be a challenge. Um, I don't know why. Right. But um, yeah, it just it takes a little practice when once you've spent time on each instrument, your your muscle, muscles know where to go. Right. Well, you might have you might have gotten into it early enough that yeah. you know some, sometimes when you do things early enough, you don't realize anything's hard. Uh, I yeah, mean, I was true. playing by ear when I was five, and so it it kind of confused me when I got to college and everyone was scared of ear training. <laughs> so, uh, but at the same time, I didn't do any sight reading, um, mm -hmm. except for occasionally in band. And so when I got to college and found out how behind I was on sight reading, I guess everyone else was amused. <laughs> um, let's talk about the setup when, when you do a show, Does, I guess it would be helpful to think of a specific show, but let's just say something that includes a little bit of all the Reed families. How do you have to set up your instruments so that you're able to function in a tiny space? And 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 I should add to that, you know, one thing we I haven't mentioned uh, in a previous interview is that we operate typically in tiny spaces. You know, we yeah. we we don't we're not okay. I, there have been some times that are, there have been exceptions, like uh, like you get a whole section of a room and there's just you know four or five players and you can spread out if you wanted mm -hmm. to, but. I would yeah. say 90% of the time you're in various degrees of claustrophobia <laughs> of some sort. So uh, you've, you've been given this, oh, I don't know, maybe five square foot patch to, <laughs> to sit in uh, at the most. How do you arrange your instruments? Well, first of all, I, 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 I kind of wait to see what this, what this space is going to be like. And then if it's a really tiny spot... I always keep my instruments to the right. Since I'm right-handed, I can reach down, switch things back and forth. A good woodwind player needs to have good instrument stands. Right. Um, that's one of my pet peeves is is getting to a show and, and having a woodwind player next to me who doesn't have any stands. Right. <laughs> they put their instruments on the floor or just hold them in their laps. Right. bothers me. <laughs> right. As far as setting up, I have multiple choices of stands. Um, if it's instruments like clarinet, flute, piccolo, oboe, I've got a stand that has um, places for four instrument pegs uh, that are interchangeable, so I can just choose whichever, whatever pegs I need. Right. It's a pretty small, compact stand, so uh, it doesn't take up a lot of room. If I'm playing saxophones... Uh, or bass clarinet or bassoon, anything like that, that takes a much larger stand, I need to just make sure I have enough room next to me somehow. <laughs> yeah. And, and move the smaller instruments wherever they'll fit. Now, have you have you ever had an instance where you 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 put an instrument down and then came back to it and, oops, you didn't put it in the right place? Have you ever, ever had that happen in a show or... Has that been pretty good? <laughs> um, you can, yeah, that not on the stand so much, but like if you put them on your lap, 
sometimes there's not time to put him on the stand. You just have to put something on your lap and grab something else. Right. Um, there's always the chance of when you're switching back to something else, picking up the wrong one. Right. Um, there, there's definitely a, a choreography. Yes. Um, to switching. Some, sometimes I did a show one time that had, a, I was playing five instruments in the show there was a big, long ballet, and during the course of the ballet, I played all five instruments at some point. Mm-hmm. There was never time to put anything down on a peg. Right. There's only time to put it in your lap, grab the next one off the stand. So by the end of the ballet, I had, I had a lap full of instruments. I had saxophones hanging off my neck. And if I just missed one thing, it would just, I'd miss entrances, and it's definitely a... a trick to doing it yeah and this is a criticism uh was a parallel criticism that uh that i encountered as a composer and i had to learn about and that is that sometimes composers when they're writing for say harp they don't they don't give enough time for pedal changes or same thing for timpani Mm -hmm. or if you're switching from flute to piccolo which is quite common in you know symphonic music you know make sure that you give enough time and it seems like some uh, arrangers are better at that than others. You know that you, you know they'll yeah. give you the amount of rest. So, it's like how much? What's the minimum amount of time? Have you ever thought about like in terms of seconds that that you would need to feel comfortable in putting one instrument down and picking it back up? I mean, I mean, you know, I know we could say something like, well, one or two minutes would be good, but like, how many seconds do you think? Uh, like a, an aspiring composer should should consider? Uh, it really doesn't have to be a, a whole lot of time. You just really need time to put one down and pick the next one up, get right. your ombre set. So yeah. you know, even just 10 seconds right. would, would work. So I get, sometimes I open up a book for a show and there'll be like, there'll be a fermata on one instrument and then the next downbeat is another instrument. So if there's no break between the fermata and the next thing starting, there's no time to switch. Right. Or if a number segues into another number, sometimes you turn the page and suddenly you're playing oboe. Right. And yeah, there's there's physically not time. And I wonder if sometimes that's the case because they they didn't have to do that on Broadway. They had they maybe had two read books and separate players and or whatever, and then it got condensed to one for the the licensing. And which actually makes your job harder than the person mm-hmm. who originally played it. <laughs> yeah. How did you first get into theater? Do you remember? Well, first of all, like how how old were you? Do you remember what show it was? Yes. So um, it was actually in high school. I went to a high school that had a really strong music program. Um, so we had a great band, um, and we had a great choral department. So, like every school, we did a spring musical. Uh, and the orchestra was always students, right? Because um, we could actually handle the books. So my fir- my first show was in tenth grade. Uh, we did Oklahoma. Okay. And I went to a school that did not have an orchestra program, um, but Oklahoma. <clears throat> little known fact: there's a bandstration version of Oklahoma, which is all. And there's no strings in it. So it's all all band instruments. Um, it's the one show that ha- that I know of that has an alto clarinet book. Yeah. So and it's a very difficult version of the show. 
for the woodwinds because all the violin parts are on the in the clarinet book, and they're really really challenging. Right. Um, but that was my first show, and then okay, I did the next two shows in my junior and senior year, and started doing some local shows. Right. And I just want to interject for the sake of the listeners, that was not an intended pun when you said Oklahoma and I responded with OK. (laughs) (laughs) um, All right. So, uh, yeah, you played throughout uh, high school. Did you continue playing shows in college? Actually, um, did you go to college? What was your what was your degree? Uh, My degrees are in clarinet performance. Okay, Uh, so did you continue shows in college? I did. Yeah. Um, the, the school shows, I went to UNC Greensboro. Okay. Right undergrad. And I played in the shows there. Um, and I did local shows, um, and, and in grad school, I played, um, shows there. Okay, great. So at some point you got into traveling with some tours. Could you talk about how you got into that and, uh, maybe what are some of the shows you did? Sure. Uh, so I started touring right after grad school. Um, I had a friend who, another woodwind player who was living in Chicago at the time. And one of the touring companies had a, had an agreement with a a theater in Chicago. The uh, show would play at that theater in Chicago for two or three months before the tour started. Um, so he was doing this show. It was secret garden. Okay. Um, and for the tour, they decided they were going to add another woodwind player. So touring companies will usually tour with a reduced orchestration. Right. Um, which will be re- reorchestrated for a smaller group. So they decided they were going to add another replayer for the actual tour. So he recommended me. Um, I talked to the music director over the phone, had a short interview, and that's how I got started. Okay. So in... In the touring world, and, and even locally, getting into the shows is really a lot about who you know. Yep. Well, it's pretty much, yeah, <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. So so that's how I got started. And after that show, I sent my resume out to um, the other touring companies. Okay. Well, what was your first show again? Secret Garden. Oh, yeah, Secret Garden. Yep. Uh, and uh, so what are, what are some of the shows that you've you've toured with? Now, um, are these... Are these Broadway tours, or are they tours for some other company? That's kind of a hard question. They they all have an they all have an association with a Broadway company, right? But two of the companies I worked for were based out of Maryland. Okay, um, just happened to be where the offices were, and one was based out of New York. Okay, uh, and so what what are some of the shows that you got to tour on? Yeah, so so I did eleven I did eleven tours. Okay. Um, started with Secret Garden. Uh, I did Will Rogers Follies. Nice. Forty um, Second Street. Funny thing happened on the way to the Forum. King and I. Phantom. The uh, Mari Yeston Phantom. Okay. Uh, Titanic. Music Man. Fame. A second Will Rogers Follies, and Man of La Mancha. Okay. Yeah, Will Will Rogers Follies is a. Uh, I've never seen the actual books, but uh, I've taught the show vocally. It's it's an underrated show. I think it's very good. Oh, it's a great show. Yeah. So, what what are what is life on tour like? I mean, it, how how long are you away from the home at one time? And 
you know, what, what are some traveling stories you have? Uh, okay. Um, what I was doing were bus and truck tours as opposed to the big tours that sit down for a month, two months in a big city. So bus and truck tours can, you can have one nighters, you can have two week, up to two week stays. I don't think I did anything more than two weeks, but typically you're, you're riding on the bus during the day. If you're going to one nighters, um, you're rolling to the city, check into the hotel for a couple hours, head to the theater, um, do a sound check and then do the show. Okay. One nighters can be a little tough. Right. You're just in and out. And uh, if you have a, a string of one nighters in a row, it gets a little grueling, but you always had places that you sat down for several for a couple of days at least or weeks. Those were always nice stops. So how long goes uh let's just pick one of the Will Rogers follies. So uh, how long how long between the time you leave for your first show and the time you get home after your last show? Okay. The first Will Rogers I did was a pretty was a short tour. It was 5 months. Okay. Um the second one was more like 9 months. Right. I think but you you do get home in between. There's there's usually a hiatus at, at the holidays, and if there's any reason, if you're moving from the east coast to the west coast, sometimes they'll send you home for for like a week to get the trucks to the west coast um, to get started again. Right. Uh, so there's always there's always breaks in there, and there's usually a break in the spring around Easter because theaters don't book anything around the holidays. Right. Okay. But yeah, either way, it sounds like. You had a period of your life where you didn't have a permanent home for a while. <laughs> it sounds like many months of your life were, were devoted to, to being on the road. Uh, were, did, did you go to all the states, uh, or at least the contiguous states? Um, I, we performed, I, I performed in 49 states. Okay. What's, and, six, and six Canadian provinces. <laughs> okay. What's the, what's the one you didn't get to? Hawaii. Okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something. Try- obscure like like uh i don't know north dakota <laughs> oh no no i've been there okay yeah tours very rarely go to hawaii just um the logistics of getting the set there right well um, it's the one place you definitely can't do by bus i mean you could get a bus to alaska it just takes a long time <laughs> when we played alaska we, we actually flew and they the set was put on a ship and sailed up there Nice. Now, now you go to Alaska. That can't be a one nighter, right? I'm assuming you're you're there for a little bit, right? Yeah, the, I, I played Anchorage twice. Um, they were the first time was a week a week sit down, um, and the second time it was actually Manifold Mancha. We actually teched in Anchorage, so we were there for about a, three weeks total. Okay, that's good. Um, so I, I heard through the grapevine that you, you might have a story uh, involving Colorado snow and and a bus. <laughs> Is that something you'd like to share? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, so we were playing um, Colorado Springs, and our next stop was Avon, Colorado, which is one of the skiing resort towns. It's next to um, next to Vail, and it was just a one nighter, but. We got. We were getting ready to get on the bus in Colorado Springs, and the bus didn't show up, and we were waiting. And the company manager got a call. The bus was broken down. Mm. So typically, when that happens, not that that happens a lot, but that that has happened a few times on my touring days. Usually, the company can uh, contact a local bus company and 
you know, get us to the next city. But for some reason, there weren't any local bus companies willing to take us to Avon, Colorado, because there was a blizzard happening. Right. So the show had to go on. That's true. <laughs> the crew was already there um, and had loaded the show and the set in, and they were ready to go. Uh, we just needed to get the cast and the orchestra there. So the company manager enlisted the help of the Colorado Springs cab companies. Um, I think we had confiscated every cab in Colorado Springs. Wow. And so the whole cast, the orchestra, we all had to take cabs. And we didn't know how bad the bus was broken down. So we were told, take everything with you because we not, might not see this bus again. So we had to take all of our luggage. And when you're on a bus and truck tour, you basically live in the bus. So you... You get you have a lot of stuff to make you comfortable in the bus, and we all we took all that with us, all of our instruments. Well, wow. <laughs> so what would have normally been like a three-hour trip turned into I think it was about six hours to get there. Well, we're, now you you weren't late, were you? You you for for the downbeat, or were you? <laughs> we were a little late. Oh well. Um, I think we got there pretty much right when downbeat should have been happening, um, and we still need to do a sound check. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> um, so we, it was it was a very abbreviated sound check. Wow. But the audience was the audience was fine. They just they didn't have anywhere to go. <laughs> they were in a blizzard. <laughs> now is that your most traumatic moment on tours, or is there anything that tops that? <laughs> oh, there there's plenty of stories. Um, when I was on the forum tour, we had a there was a three week hi hiatus around the holidays, and when we started back, we started back in Sioux Falls or Sioux City. Mm -hmm. one, of the two, one of the two towns. Uh, right. And funny enough, it, that involves a blizzard as well. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, two of it, there was a big blizzard going on in the Northeast. Um, so actually only two of us, since I flew, I flew out of North Carolina, only two of us made it there on the day we were supposed to get there. Oh, no. We we're supposed to get, everyone was supposed to get there the day before we started back, but everybody else got back on the day of the show. We we're going to have a um, brush up rehearsal because we had three weeks off. So the cast came in, we got set up. I didn't have a book. Oh, no. <laughs> My book had been left in Texas three weeks ago. So I, I did that brush up rehearsal and the show all from memory, which I don't care how many times you play a show, playing a whole show from memory is not an easy t thing to do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, so it was early nothing. Early enough in the day that we discovered it, that they, they were able to call the theater in Texas, and, and they went and found my book in the pit and overnighted it to us. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that, okay, so those are some <laughs> pretty dramatic stories, but yeah. things you can laugh about now, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what's a, whether it's local show or whether it's a tour, what's a, what's a really fond memory of a show that you might have? I don't know if it's, I wouldn't really classify it as a fond memory, but I'd say one of the most, how should, how should I put this, dramatic memories. Right. Um, we were teching, uh the Titanic tour when 9-11 happened. Oh, wow. Of course, everybody was distraught because most everybody was from New York. Mm -hmm. um, but we continued teching and we were had our opening show a couple Maybe like four days after after it happened, and there's a point in the show when this when the ship sinks. Mm -hmm. There's a sound. There was a sound effect that played of basically just metal 
tearing apart and oh no people screaming um there was a very surreal moment wow. uh, on opening night and the audience there the sound effect played and there were just dead silence right um i can imagine yeah it, it was a very sur- surreal moment hmm. i guess wow yeah that's 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 quite amazing um just a a few questions here uh let's um what what would you say is the most difficult book you've ever had to play okay so well i'll go back to titanic okay (laughs) um not that not that the parts were all that difficult it was just that show goes nonstop. right for two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. I think the only place where there's not music playing is during that sound effect. Wow. <laughs> um, so I was physically exhausted after every show. Mm. Um, and as far as, as far as technicality difficultness, um, I would probably say parade. Wow. Okay. I was going to say it's had to be, it seems like it always has to be Jason Robert Brown or, or Sondheim. <laughs> it's to be one of those two. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, okay, good. So you've played so many shows. Have you ever counted how many shows you've like, how many, not necessarily counting each production of a show, but like how many different musicals you've played for? Um, I haven't really counted. I actually have a list of every show I played. Okay. <laughs> I've never, I've never really counted it up. Um, What's I don't it? think, I don't think I've played as many as people would think because I spent 13 years touring. Right. So I wasn't doing a variety of shows. Right. Yeah. What's a what's a show that you haven't played that you really want to play? I would love to do Urine Town sometime. Okay. Um, the the report just listening to it and listening to the soundtrack the the soundtrack. Right. Yeah, read parts sound really really cool and sound like it'd be a fun show to do. Okay. Before we finish up here, so one other thing I just wanted to ask you about, and that is you have a pretty well-known love and collection of ocarinas. So when did that, when did you start collecting ocarinas? And uh, uh, tell us about that. First of all, my, my grandfather, I never heard him, but my grandfather played ocarina. Okay. So when going back to going to the flea markets with my parents, every time my mom saw an ocarina at a booth, she was like, Oh, my dad used to play ocarina, (laughs) but um, I never got one until probably about, 15 years ago, my mom bought me a, a vintage ocarina. Um, and I messed around with it. it. It was okay. But then I, I got a more modern ocarina that's a little bit easier to play, a little better in tune. And it was just a lot of fun. It's, it's, it's just a fascinating little instrument because being made out of clay, there's not like a prescribed way they need to look. It's not like a clarinet where all the clarinets look exactly the same. You can have, there's different shapes, um, different finishes, glazes, and, um, right. and of course, they come in a variety of sizes. So you, just like all the other woodwind family, you get all the different sizes. And Yeah, whenever this episode goes up, uh, I'm not sure which page, it may be on Instagram, or, or um, I may even include it on my website, but I, I'm going to... I'm going to share some photos of your ocarinas just so okay. people can see what, uh, what these look mm-hmm. like, the, all the fascinating shapes and so forth. Yeah. Um, 
you don't have a YouTube channel, do you? Where of of like playing any of them, do you? Uh, I do. Um, it's not all music. I've never some kayaking videos on there and biking, but right. But I I, I do have a uh, channel. It's, you would just search BK Blauk. Okay. BK B L A U C H. Okay, great. And uh, you know, just one more thing of ocarina. So, so I just find this fascinating because I know everyone has kind of their own really special events and i guess the cliche is you know it's like comic-con or or something like that where it's really big to you and you're not sure if other people understand it and i think for you last year i know you weren't available for a show because you went to italy but was it for yes. uh, was it ocarina festival yes it was the um budrio ocarina festival which is one of the big international ocarina fest there's actually several <laughs> Right. Um, but Budrio, Italy, is, is the birthplace of the ocarina. That's where it was um, invented. Oh, I didn't know that. In the form you see it now. Um, ocarina is a, an ancient instrument, but um, that was where it was developed into what we kind of know it as it is now. But, but yeah, it was a four-day festival. Um, people from all over the world come. There's concerts, um, vendors. Uh, so... Wow. Yeah, I got, I got to play on one of the concerts. Um, it was an amazing experience. Wow. Uh, now, to your knowledge, has any uh, any show, theater show book ever called for an ocarina? Absolutely. Uh, actually, yes. Crazy for you. Oh, okay. Uh, has an ocarina part. It, I've, I've only done that show once, and it was before I played ocarina, and I didn't have the ocarina in my book. So there now there's irony <laughs> yeah and um not that it's in the actual book but the wizard of oz mm-hmm. movie soundtrack actually uses a quartet of ocarinas oh okay uh, and when i played the flute book for wizard of oz i the theater version calls for it to be played on recorder right but i <clears throat> i played on ocarina okay so great yeah all right uh, well, I think we've just about reached the end of our time. We, we kind of mentioned YouTube. Is it, uh, I mean, you don't really have a page, but is, is there anywhere that you want to, want to mention if people want to follow you? Um, I do have a web page. It's woefully out of date, okay. at the moment, but uh, it's just replayer.info. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's my personal web page. Okay. That's that's I haven't I haven't heard a lot of dot infos so that should be very that should be very easy to remember. All yeah. right. Um well Brian thank you for for time uh coming on and uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. And that wraps up episode number 7. And uh just wanted to further comment uh about the ocarinas if you head over to Instagram some point this weekend probably probably tomorrow but maybe maybe today. I, I will post uh, a picture of the, some of the ocarinas that uh, Brian has in his collection. And, uh, and I also encourage you to go uh, search out his YouTube channel. Um, he does have quite a few more uh, videos of his performance on there. And as he said, there are a lot of kayak, kayaking videos, but I think those are fascinating too. It's just not what we're talking about on this podcast. But yeah, go check out his channel. On Tuesday, we're finally going to add the brass section to our show. I'm going to be talking to someone who plays French horn. And uh, really look forward to her interview. We're not only going to talk about French horn, but we're also going to talk about being an orchestral contractor and um, also 
what it's like to be a professional musician with chronic illness. So getting into a variety of topics, and that is on Tuesday. So just as a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, be sure to follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Life in the Pit Pod. And you can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music or Twitter and Facebook at David M. Lane Music. As always, a special thanks to Mark Parolo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. All original music is composed and performed by David Lane. For the time being, you can find out more about this podcast at davidlanemusic.com slash podcast or at our Podbean page, lifeinthepit.podbean.com. Again, please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts and share with your friends. Thank you for listening.